morning, Church on Mill. My name is Andy Clare, and I just finished up a residency here at Church on Mill earlier this summer. So first of all, I just want to thank you, uh, members of Church on Mill, for your faithful giving. Uh, as Pastor Tad prayed, you are equipping men and women to experience this res- residency program that we offer here. Um, that's really just equipping people for gospel ministry that hopefully as Church on Mill, we're, we're not just giving and, and serving to meet the minimum requirements, but our desire is to see the kingdom of God advance and the gospel of Jesus Christ go into the corners of this world. And, and your giving makes that possible, and, and I'm a, uh, just an honored and humbled recipient of that, so thank you. Uh, this morning, I, I want to cover a psalm that's known to be a challenging passage. I, I want us to look at Psalm 137 in our time together today. You can find that psalm on page 300 in your uh, chair Bible. You know, in the Midwest, we call them pew Bibles, but these aren't really pews. So in your chair Bible, it's on page 300. Uh, And you're welcome to take that Bible home with you if you'd like. One of the things that Psalm 137 addresses is how do we make sense of a fallen world? Humans have an intuitive desire to make sense of the world we live in. Children from a young age will use their eyes, then their hands, then their, then their mouths, uh, and then they'll crawl, they'll do anything they can to start to explore the world around them. They want to make sense of things. We, we live in a scientific age where we can measure to, to within fractions of a decimal the acceleration of gravity, the, the buoyancy of water, um, and any, any number of given things so that we can make sense of the world we live in. But what happens when Hurricane Katrina strikes? What happens when you're watching two trade towers crumble into the ground on the news? Churches tend to swell after events like this. People are looking for answers to questions that they were not asking 24 hours ago. Is there meaning in this? Is there purpose? Is there hope? Is there a chance to control the world I live in, which seems a little less welcoming than it did a day ago? Sometimes we ask these questions due to personal suffering, terminal cancer, chronic pain, debilitating mental illness that leaves your loved ones a little bit more of a stranger every day. When suffering evil strikes, we inevitably ask ourselves, why? Why me? Why now? And maybe more importantly, what are we supposed to do? Psalm 137 is a beautiful passage with hard words. But they're words that give us confidence and truth to face the challenging circumstances of life. By God's grace, I I hope to respond to some initial objections that we all might have to this passage this morning, and then to go on and and to look at the words themselves and and to hear what God would have us believe and do in response to these words. I'd like to invite Pat Nickel. Would you please come up and and read our passage this morning?
Thank you, Pat. Why would God, who is good, a God who can do anything, say something like this? My heart thinks to sink. My heart sinks to think of infants dying, being thrown against a rock and killed to death. Surely there's something here for Christians to consider. When we come to a passage like this, there will be a variety of objections. And before we begin, I want to address some of those objections and then invite us into reflection on these words. Here are the, most, here are the two most general objections to this language and this psalm. No good person would ever say something like this. But God said it. Therefore, whoever God is, and we don't really know, he is not good. Or how about this? If God is good, and he's powerful enough to do whatever he wants, he wouldn't have let any of this happen. He would not let suffering take place in the first place. Therefore, this verse shows me that God Whoever he is, and we can't really know, he may be good, but he's certainly not powerful. Here's the problem with, with these two protests, these objections. They assume a certain definition of what is good. Because this text does not harmonize with our existing definition of good, we reject this text as inconsistent with truth. If you're thinking along these lines this morning, my invitation to you is to consider that Psalm 137 may be inviting you and all of us to reconsider what we think is the highest good to pursue. Here are some additional objections that you may have. Objection number three, the Bible is pre-modern superstition. These kinds of passages fill its pages only weak-minded people who need emotional crutches will trust in it. Here, the Bible, not necessarily God himself, is your first point of conflict. Essentially, you expect this kind of stuff in the Bible, which is why you reject it. My question to you is this. What if this passage, what if this passage is actually revealing what is true and good in the world? If it is actually revealing what is true and good, then it's not superstition. It's to be believed. Do you care enough about truth and the good to consider its claims? Another objection, objection number four. The God of the Bible is not good. But Jesus is good. And we should only trust the parts of the Bible that are most consistent with who Jesus is. This is the ancient teaching uh, and in its most basic form, it's saying the Old Testament God is cruel and mean and dirgy. He's like that man down the street that yells at me when I walk on his lawn. He created the world, but the world is not good. New Testament God, Jesus, is here to fix all the Old Testament God problems. Jesus is where we can trust things. So you can't trust everything in the Bible, just the parts about Jesus. 
Again, this question deals directly with Scripture. And although it certainly deals with who is God, um, our first point of conflict is Scripture itself. If it can be shown from Scripture uh, that these verses are actually used by Jesus and Jesus teaches on them, would you reconsider your objection? Would that evidence be enough for you to reject your presuppositions about Old Testament versus New Testament God? Here's objection number five. The Bible is ancient wisdom written by man. We should gladly glean truths from it that are consistent with other ancient teachings that we know to be true. This passage is clearly inconsistent, so it must be rejected. Again, this objection is primarily with Scripture. Uh, but my, my invitation to you, friend, is if we can show that Scripture as a whole and unified, and that even these verses fit with that unity, and that these verses point us to what is ultimately good, then these verses are, are telling us something that these other religions don't. So therefore, these other religions can't be ultimately good because they're not telling us what is good. Again, we have to reconsider what is the ultimate good. So the, a sixth objection or a sixth response to, to this text that I don't think is quite right. The Psalms as a whole teach us that we can be honest in our prayer life to God. They, they teach us um, that we can be expressive and genuine. But we don't necessarily think that everything they say is right. So we can be genuine with the knowledge that uh, it's not necessarily something we're supposed to believe, actually. Now, here's the problem with that objection. God has inspired the Psalms to be the prayer book and the worship book of Jews and Christians for thousands and thousands of years. The songs we sing are intended to shape our ethics and what we believe about God, the good, and truth. We sing here in the mornings uh, not simply to lift up worship to God, though that is hugely important, but we also sing to remind ourselves of what we should be seeking. It would be inconsistent with God's character to put words into our songs that we are not supposed to believe and trust as good. With these objections in mind, let us now look at the words of this psalm and see how it is inviting us to think about and define what is good and what we ought to believe and pursue. As, as a Bible-believing church, Church on Mill is committed to teaching and believing all the words of Scripture. Christians today are meant to pray and sing Psalm 137 with a right understanding of its meaning. Psalm 137 begins with hopelessness. It begins with the lament. It begins with, with Jews in exile away from their homeland. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. There we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion. On the willows there, there we hung our lyres. We know from 2 Chronicles, at the end of it, um, 2 Chronicles is a book it, earlier in the Old Testament, and it ends uh, the narrative of the kingdom of Israel. At the end of it, Babylon, the empire, comes and destroys all of Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and they take the people of Jerusalem away, 
into exile. This psalm opens up where that narrative leaves off. And we're listening in to the mourning and the horror and the trauma of exiles weeping. They cease their singing. They hang up their hearts. But it gets worse. Verse 3, For there are captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? How? How? The torment itself is not about the lack of mirth. The torment itself is not about be joyful, O captive. It's more specific. They're asking, sing us the songs about your God. Sing us the songs where you're special to him. Sing us the song where he's powerful. Sing us the song where it actually tells you that all the world will come and worship your God. Sing us those songs, O captive. This would be an intense period of hopelessness for the exiles. Back at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 12, God makes a promise to the man Abraham, and he promises him land, and he promises that I will be your God. And so every descendant of Abraham has looked forward to the promise of having a homeland, of having a place to dwell, and having a place where God would meet with them. All of that is gone. No land, no God, no nation. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? Psalm 9, 11 says, Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. The song is literally saying that that God would dwell in Zion. Zion is a hill um, uh, in Jerusalem, sometimes used synonymously with Jerusalem, but it's where the temple was built. And the idea is that God would dwell there. They're taken away from that place where God would dwell. The song is ultimately looking eventually for restoration of that, but we're not there yet. So this is a period of, of deep hopelessness. And brothers and sisters, there is periods in, in our lives where we all experience hopelessness, where we feel the weight of exile, where we feel the weight that things are not as they should be. The world we live in does not make sense. But God does not want us to remain in hopelessness. Quite the opposite. God wants us to move from our hopelessness into his promises. And that's what this psalm does. There's a switch. There's a change. There's a dynamic difference between verse 4 and verse 5. There's two things to notice as a savvy reader. One thing is that the topic changes. We switch from talking about Babylon to now Jerusalem. So there's a subject change. But there's also a change in the voice. The song intensifies. It changes from how can we sing to I will remember. If I forget you, O Jerusalem. 
It intensifies from being a general lament to a personal commitment. And God's inviting all of us to move from the hopelessness that we all experience into personal conviction about his promises. What is the change that happens here? What motivates the movement from lament to commitment? I believe it's that the exiles are remembering the words of God and they're remembering his promises. In Genesis 12:3, God speaks to Abraham, the father of who would be the father of all Israel. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the fa- and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You'll notice Edom in this section. Edom and Israel are both descendants from Abraham. Israel was the child of promise. Edom was not. So as the children of promise, what do you experience when when other people have it easier? When the people who are not God's people, whom God has not chosen, they're not in exile. They seem to be prospering. In fact, they deride and mock us in exile. This is the experience of the Jewish captives. Edom mocked and tormented Israel as it was being destroyed. And now Israel is remembering the promises of God. Israel is clinging to the fact that, yes, we are the promised people. We're the people of the promise. And you said, God, you said that blessed are those who bless us, and you will dishonor those who curse us. God, we are pressing into your promises in the midst of hopelessness. But do you notice that there's a temptation? There's a temptation in this psalm. The exiles are sitting by waters. These would be the rivers and the canals of Babylon. There are no rivers and there are no canals in Jerusalem. They are sitting under the willow trees. There are no trees in Jerusalem. Babylon is being portrayed here as a place of exotic and wonderful beauty. It's contrasted with mourning, but is certainly depicted as an attractive place. Babylon is also a powerful place. Babylon is the place of beauty and power. But it's not the place of promise. Are are there things in your life that are seductive? Are there things in your life, money, success, popularity, that you find just a little bit more attractive than the idea of, of pursuing God, of pursuing the place where He dwells, of pursuing Jerusalem. There's this temptation, there's this dichotomy between Babylon and Jerusalem. And here the Israelites are saying, we're going to believe in your promises and we're going to pursue Jerusalem. What does pursuing Jerusalem look like for us? If, if I was in Minnesota preaching, I would say, we're all Norwegian, Swedish, and German. What do we have to do with Jerusalem? But here we're, we're mostly Christians in this room. We live in Tempe, Arizona, and we live in 2018. 
What does it look like to make Jerusalem our highest joy? Everywhere in the Old Testament, Jerusalem is the place where God's promises rest and the place where God would dwell. New Testament authors realize that Jesus did something. That when Jesus was on trial, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. The New Testament authors realize that Jesus came to do something different. That all the promises associated with Jerusalem are fulfilled in Jesus. So what this means is that when the uh, New Testament authors write about Jerusalem, they write about a place where we will dwell with God. They write of a place that we can expect and long for and desire with our whole being. It might be on the screen, Revelation 21, um, 22, um, no, Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There is a time coming when God will dwell with man. And if we see ourselves primarily as exiles in this life and not at home, there will be a longing for that new Jerusalem. What does it look like, Christian, to set Jerusalem above your highest joy? Are you longing for the new creation? Do you see the world in chaos around you? Do you see the sin remaining in your own life and you long for something different? You long for the perfect peace. You long for the perfect comfort. You long for the perfect security that Christ and his presence will bring to this world. Are you longing for the time when all things are made new? When all things are set right? When chaos is put to end? The sea is no more? Do you long for that, Christian? In your personal prayer times, does come, Lord Jesus, come to the tip of your tongue? I know for me it doesn't all the time. Psalm 137 is inviting us to join in the prayers of the saints from all history and long for the presence of God to once again dwell with man. Don't settle for the things of Babylon. Don't settle for the bitter herbs of captivity. Long for the rejuvenating presence of the one who can truly satisfy. Verses 1 through 4 would tell us that we live in a fallen world, that there is indeed hopelessness present that is real, and is active, and we do experience it. Verses 5 through 7 would have us believe that God has given us promises which lead us to a greater truth, that we are not meant to remain hopeless. Let's look at the last two verses. 
These are the verses where most of our objections, that most of our difficulty comes with reading this. These are accurate, reflective statements of what happens in war. This is not something that people have no familiarity with. This is not something that is simply recording um, something not consistent with truth. Some of us have been refugees. Some of us have fled civil unrest, and we've experienced this very thing. So why would this be something that Christians should pray? So far in the psalm, there's not been really anything new that, if you're familiar with other parts of the Bibles, Bible has not already been said. But here, we come to a question mark. To begin this final look at these two verses, they demand that we answer this question. What is good? Let me start with this in our discussion. Is justice a good thing? We may disagree on who deserves justice and what justice is, but, but as a whole, as an idea, I think we would all agree that justice is a good thing. Well, why is justice a good thing? And this is where we have options. Why is justice a good thing? On one hand, justice lets society function. It keeps wrong and evil at a minimum, and it seeks to right them. We would certainly agree that this is a good thing, assuming that society is a good thing, right? If society is not a good thing, then why would preserving it be a good thing? But we assume that society is a good thing, so therefore justice must be a good thing as well. This is one reason that we would say justice is good. But justice is also good for a different reason. Ultimately, justice reveals the glory of God because God is the giver of all justice. So in justice, all credit must go to God. It reveals his perfect moral attributes. It reveals his eternal wisdom. It, re it reveals his um, true nature as creator and judge. God is glorified in all of creation when he judges. So this is a second definition then of why justice is good. The first definition says that uh, justice is primarily about society and the good, and we measure it against humanity. What's good for humanity? In the second, we measure justice against the glory of God as the ultimate good, and we measure justice against who is God. So as we navigate this, to my objectors in the crowd who maybe have their questions unanswered still, at this point is where we might part paths. If you see the highest good in life as the glory of God, that will radically change everything else in how you see it. If you see the glory of God as the thing that ought to be pursued above all, all else, that will change everything for how you view reality and will change how you view these verses. 
So if we can agree that justice is good, not just because it preserves society, but also because it reveals the character and the glory of God, then we must ask ourselves, do verses 9 and 8 reveal the character of God? And if they reveal that character of God, then they must be good because they're pointing us to the glory of God. Let me read these verses one more time. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Do you hear that language of justice? They're not asking, they're not asking for willy-nilly revenge. They're asking for repayment. Blessed is the one who repays you. All this has already been done to them. They're asking for justice. Blessed is the one who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. So let me pose and answer several questions about these last two verses uh, in our remaining time. The first question, is this a prayer of personal revenge? Is this a prayer of personal revenge? It's not. And, and here's why we can clearly know that it's not. This psalm is part of a group of psalms called the imprecatory psalms. Essentially, that's a fancy word of saying the psalms that plead or the urgent prayer psalms, psalms that pray for justice. Most of these psalms are authored by King David. Now, what we know from King David's life is that he had personal enemies, one of them being a guy named Saul. David had several opportunities to take personal revenge on Saul, and he never does. He trusts revenge, he trusts justice in God's hands. And yet, he writes these prayers, he writes these songs of request to God that ask for revenge. So we see two different things. We see that God is the one who ultimately judges but we are invited to pray and ask for that. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And we, we ask and pray for that, but we trust that God will do it, not our own. So this is not a prayer of personal revenge. Okay, question number two. Does this prayer support the killing of babies? Does this prayer support uh, infanticide? The church has long been um, one of the foremost activists for preserving innocent life. You see, from the earliest times in the Roman period, um, where babies were often left to die, that the church would be the ones, based on the counsel of God, who would rescue and work to save innocent lives. Is this psalm contradicting everything else that the Bible seems to say? There's, a, there's an interpretive option here. Let me take you to Nahum 3.10. That'll be on the screen. Nahum 3.10. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces. So we see this phrase again. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. 
Do you see the three words in italics, the three nouns? Hebrew poetry often works in one of two ways. It either groups similar ideas together or it groups different ideas together. This is a helpful example because you see three lines, not just two. So we're given a hint. The bottom two lines are honored men and great men. So we can assume that this passage is grouping similar ideas. And now this word, infants, the same word in our psalm, is used. So we can assume that infants here is being used similarly or parallelly with honored men and great men. Now you may be saying, that's very strange, Andy. Yes, it is. It is strange. But it's an, it's an idea that's very consistent in the ancient world. Uh, there, there is ancient images, pictures that have been preserved in, in ancient ruins of, of a goddess of a region sitting on a throne. And the king will be an infant sitting on her lap. And the king would be the little one of the god. The king is, is essentially the hope of that nation to know and obey their god. He is the mediator between God and the people. And, and so, um, if you think about it, where is a nation's hope stored? A nation's hope is stored in two places, in their rulers to lead well and in their youngest generations to rise up and create a legacy. And, and so you see that in this language. The, 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 old, the ancient Near East uses little ones as a symbol of hope both for the king and for the coming generation. So when it says, um, blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock, no doubt, no doubt this is a horrific image. I'm not trying to lessen that. But what I am saying is that there is an idea being expressed here that's not limited to infant side. There's this idea of blessed is the one who takes everything you hope for and put your trust in and dashes that against the rock just as our hope had been dashed. Okay. That's great. Really, Andy. But let's talk about Jesus. I like Jesus. Jesus is my friend. Jesus would never pray anything like this. What do you have to say about that, Andy? I'm super glad you asked. I am glad you asked, because this will help us deal with our objections. Is the Bible a unified whole? Should we pray something like this? Jesus actually uses this psalm when he speaks against Jerusalem. Luke 19, 40. 3 through 44. Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem because they have rejected him. Israel, Jerusalem, once again has rejected her God. Jesus is broken over this and he says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and here's the word, and tear you down to the ground. That's the same word in the Greek as what's used in the Greek version of Psalm 137. 
to dash and tear you down to the ground, you and your children. He's taking these same ideas and saying, because you've rejected God, this is the fate of all who put their hope in something other than Jerusalem. This is the hope of anyone who puts their trust in anything apart from God, from the place where he dwells. Because you did not know the time of your visitation, God has revealed himself to his people and he's been rejected. But to all who do receive him, but for all who, who do receive God, he gives the right to become children of God. If you're sitting here today, you are either in Babylon or you're waiting Jerusalem eagerly. You are either enjoying the fruits and the pleasures of Babylon or you are, are despising those and looking for the new Jerusalem. There, there are no two options here. And Jesus is saying that the one, the people who know me, who know Jesus, they are the true children of God. And they are the ones who will not be dashed. They are the ones whose hope will not be stripped from them. They are the ones who have a true and eternal hope. We see this in, um, I might have skipped over the slide earlier, but in, oh no, I think we did. We covered the... Um, Got my notes skipped. But the idea is that we're awaiting that new Jerusalem. You cannot reject Jesus and have life or hope. Here, in Psalm 137, we have a passage of hope. We can recognize that our day of visitation has come. We can look to the fate of rebellious Israel, of evil Edom, and of wicked Babylon, and we can choose a different path. We can choose a path where we receive the gift of salvation from God, not because of works we do, but because of the works Jesus did, dying on the cross to save us from our rebellion. It's one thing. It is one thing to be delivered from exile in Babylon. It is completely another thing to have Babylon delivered out of our hearts of exile. Let's talk about Babylon. What is the fate of Babylon? What's interesting is Babylon never really falls. Babylon never really comes to a catastrophic end. Babylon ends quite peacefully when the, per when the Persians come in. They kill a couple of the chief leaders, but there's no mass destruction when Babylon comes to an end. And I think when the Jewish people see this, they realize something. And the New Testament authors realize something. That Babylon is so much bigger than any empire. We see this in Revelation 18. He, and he, excuse me, the angel called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon. Babylon is still here today, tempting us and seducing us. Come out of her, my people. 
lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are as heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And this is where we get that language of Psalm 137. Pay her back. Three compense. Justice. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. And repay her doubles for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup that she mixed. When you read Psalm 137, I want you to realize that God is a God who moves his people from exile, from hopelessness, from the fall into promises, and from promises into hope. There is hope in no one else. There is no hope in Babylon. The hopes of Babylon will be dashed eventually. But the hopes that remains with the new Jerusalem, for us to set above our highest joys that which cannot perish, that which is still coming, that, my friends, is what we need to seek and desire. If, if you're visiting today and, and you're not yet a Christian, what you need to realize is that the exile that you are in is one of sin. There's nothing that you can do to come out of your exile. This exile, must you must be delivered from by the exile redeemer, by Jesus. If you have ever sensed hopelessness, it is because you have not yet come to the hope giver. The one person who can cure your afflictions and give you a song to sing is the person and the God, Jesus Christ. Won't you come out of Babylon? Won't you come and seek the new Jerusalem with us? I invite you to consider the claims from Psalm 137 today. The message from Psalm 137 in summary is this. Though we live in a fallen world where exile is a reality, God's word reminds us that his promises endure and his justice, it reveals his glory and it is certainly coming. Christians, this is your songbook of faith, this book of Psalms. Meditate, read, sing, and memorize this book. It will be healing to your bones and refreshment to your soul. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, these were heavy words, but words of life. Ultimately, words of hope. I pray that every person here today would have a sense that you are the God who is returning. You are the God who will wipe the tears away from all the eyes, Lord, of who love you. I ask that we would await that hope with eager expectation. I ask for any seeker, someone who hasn't yet made a commitment to Christ yet sitting in this room, I ask that you be gracious and merciful and show them your kindness and bring them to the point where they too desire the relationship with Jesus Christ that brings them into the new Jerusalem. Amen.